to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Today, I've got a real treat for you. My full interview with Natalie Gruniger, our special guest for our episode on fashion and Anne Boleyn. We talked way back in August of 2021, but I couldn't deprive you all of the chance to hear it. Natalie has made a career of studying and writing about the Tudors. She's written many books about them, including In the Footsteps of the Six Wives of Henry VIII. She's currently working on a book about the final year of Anne's life, due for publication later this year, so look out for that one. She runs the website On the Tudor Trail, a treasure trove of information about this time period, and Talking Tudors, a podcast that time travels back to the Tudor court through interviews with a host of experts. She's also running a very special online course starting in January 2023. It's called 365 Days with Anne Boleyn. Over 12 months, participants will come together and contribute to a supportive and inspiring online community of individuals who will share in a unique learning experience, one that will ultimately bring them closer than ever to the woman behind the famous Pearl Bee. All the details on that are in this episode show notes. In our interview, we talked about the life of a queen in Tudor England, her duties, the importance of royal dress, ladies-in-waiting, how to go to the bathroom in the castle, and, of course, all things Anne Boleyn. So grab your fanciest nightgown. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Alexis, Parker, Dakota, Andrea, and Lorraine. My newest lady presidents, Jessica, Peter Nell, Catherine, and Patty. My boss ladies, Amy, Annabelle, Elizabeth G, Elizabeth M, Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Michelle, Monique, Natalie, Nuria, Patricia, Rebecca, Sarah, and Tanya. My newest adventuress, Kate B, and Anna, Carlos, Emily, Helena, Iris, Jessica, Joe Marie, Kelly, Phil, Stephanie, and Terry. My warrior queens, Lori, Sloane and Neve, Alexis and Kate. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks and Samara. And my excellent lady pharaohs, Laura and the fabulous Courtney's. My patrons play such a big role in helping me to keep the show going. And they get access to exclusive content, sneak peeks, early access to episodes, exclusive bonus episodes, Q&As, full interviews, giveaways, and more. To find out more about it, just go to my website. Natalie, welcome to the Explorers. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Of course, I'm so excited to have you. So in season three, we're time traveling back to Tudor England. And this is an area that I'm an enthusiast of, but not an expert. But you are very much an expert in this period. Uh, you've been 
working in this period and, and writing about this period for such a long time. So I was wondering if we could start by telling us a little bit about what got you into the tutors and kind of the evolution of your work in this area. Sure. Okay. I'll try and make this fairly succinct because I do wear a lot of different hats. But um, I suppose if you haven't guessed from the accent, I am a born and bred Sydney cider. So I live in a, a lovely leafy suburb of southern Sydney with my husband and two teenage children. Uh, the Tudors, let me see, when did this begin? I, I guess it was about 20 years ago. Now, I can't believe it's been that long, actually. And my sister lent me a book that she was reading. It was The Secret Diary of Anne Boleyn by Robin Maxwell. And I had never been, you know, educated here in Australia. We, we don't learn about the Tudors at school. So this was really my first foray into this whole area. And I, I fell in love quite immediately. And I had lots of questions. So not long after that, I was going to do a European trip and I asked my sister, well, what do you recommend? Because I had two days in, I think two or three days in London. And she said, oh, well, you have to go to Hampton Court and you have to go to the Tower of London. So I said, okay, you know, so off I went on my own. It was November and I remember it was absolutely freezing and I was completely underdressed. It was my first time in, in London and I was just in, you know, typical Australian fashion clothing and it wasn't enough. So I still remember my teeth like actually you know, smacking together because I was so cold and walking around the tower and just being completely amazed. I had no idea what I was looking at at that point, except I knew that it was something quite amazing and special, especially in Aussie. You know, Australia is a beautiful ancient land, but we don't have buildings built in 1100 or anything like that. So this was, this was quite amazing. And I remember standing on the, the Tower Green area, where now we have a very beautiful memorial to the people executed there. But at the time, it was just a plaque and it just named a number of people executed. And among them was Queen Anne Boleyn. And I just remember thinking, oh, okay, so this is the lady I read about in the book. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to know why she ended up being executed, obviously. And to be honest, that's the question I still sometimes struggle with. And it's taken me a very long time to come to any sort of conclusion about that. And then I went to Hampton Court. And of course, that just fueled the fire. And I was absolutely caught and, you know, captured by the Tudors. And it, but it took quite some time, not until 2009, that I kind of officially devoted a lot of time to researching. And that's when I started on the Tudor Trail. So that's my website. Uh, at first, it was a place to kind of post um, little articles and interview authors and and that kind of thing. It's evolved quite a lot over the years. Um, and then that led me to writing books about the Tudors, researching writing books. So I've written quite a number of books. I've co-authored two with Sarah Morris. So In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn, In the Footsteps of the Six Wives of Henry VIII. And my first solo book was called Discovering Tudor London. So I do like to tell the story of the Tudors through the incredible palaces and buildings that remain to this day. I also collaborated with the, the illustrator Catherine Holman and created a set of adult coloring books inspired by Tudor history and they're, they're pretty fabulous actually. So if anyone wants a, a good gift for a Tudor history lover, go and have a look at that. Uh, and then of course in 2000, well, I can't remember now when it was, 2018, I think, I started Talking Tudors. So that's my podcast where I interview um, historians, novelists, and other experts about the Tudor period. And I think I'm up to, I just published episode 122. So <laughs> that's going pretty well. So I think that, yeah, that's about it in a nutshell. 
And talking tutors, I have to say, has been an essential resource for me in in crafting season three. So thank you for creating and your website as well. It's just such an incredible plethora treasure trove of information about the tutors and there is so much to absorb so thank you for for creating something that uh has been so fun to sink my teeth into well thank you that's that's really lovely to hear i do i'm very lucky to talk to a lot of wonderful experts and i myself have been learning a lot along the way and sorry i just remembered you did ask about the book that i'm working on um (laughs) currently which i completely forgot about so yes, the book is at the moment provisionally titled The Final Year of Anne Boleyn. So it is a an account, a close look at the last 18 months, really, more than the final year. It's the last 18 months. So all of 1535 and then, of course, 1536, really trying to put, I suppose, her downfall and what happened in context, but also trying to, to bring to life her story and to, I don't know how, wade through the the plethora of misconceptions and just myth that surround her life and especially her downfall as well. So I'm close to the end. I'm kind of, you know, when you see those marathon runners at the end and they're crawling, you know, <laughs> and someone's going to help them, like that's what I feel like. I'm I'm really close, but it's such a traumatic period that I'm in now because I'm in May now, 1536, that I feel like yeah, I've taken on a lot of that trauma and I need to just kind of step back a little bit just to get the book done so I can share it with you all. Yes. And I can't wait to get into all things Anne Boleyn and and especially the last couple of years of her really, really interesting, very dramatic life. But I'm wondering if you could tell us first, what is it? You've clearly always felt very drawn to Anne specifically. So what is it about Anne that really calls to you? That's a, such a good question. And and you'd imagine that by now I would have a really well-rehearsed answer to that because people have asked me a lot. However, I find that there's an element that is a little mysterious. And I, I hope your listeners don't think, oh, what's this woman talking about? But maybe they'll understand. I, I feel drawn to her, but I don't always find it easy to put into words exactly what it is that attracts me. Of course, she was inc- she was just brilliant. She was incredibly intelligent. She was so talented, so talented in so many different areas, you know, languages, dancing, singing, hunting, in all the pastimes, I suppose, of a Tudor aristocratic woman. She was just brilliant at all of it. But she also, she was also very human. So she's someone that you and I can relate to. You know, she had some really bad days where she did not behave as you would expect a Tudor queen to behave. So I I find that it's that side of her, her fiery side, her waspish tongue, you know, her she she was capable of, well, she was incredibly loyal to people that supported her and that were loyal to her, but she could be quite vindictive, you know, to other people. And it's all of this that I think makes her a real 3D human being rather than a kind of two-dimensional character. And all those things draw draw me to her, especially, I suppose, her courage. I think she showed great courage throughout her life and in particular during her um, downfall, her incarceration and her downfall. And that's courage that I find myself kind of drawing on in my own personal life when I think things are going bad for me. I think, oh, let's think about Anne. No, they're not quite so bad. Um, So, yeah, I think she is 
very three-dimensional when you get to to know her, I suppose, and move past those labels and the stereotypes. You find an actual human being, a woman that was molded and affected by many different factors. And I, I find that quite tantalizing, I suppose. And really her story, you can't make that up. It is just, it has all the elements that we love from the kind of, you know, modern day soaps that some people watch and get addicted to. Her life really does have all those elements as well. And you know, it it absolutely does. It's such a soap opera story. Um, and the way she comes to power and marries um, Henry is really interesting to me because obviously there's been so much controversy ever since about, you know, was she a pawn of her family's plans? Was she a victim of Henry's, you know, aggressive lust and desire for her? Or was she this cunning, ambitious woman who wanted to make herself a queen? What do you think about what, what? What do you make of that? What do you think about that? Look, almost everything about Anne's life is hotly debated, and you could get into you know very passionate arguments with people online if you so choose to. I try and stay out of it. However, I think again we have to keep in mind that these were real, living, breathing people with. Um, competing motives and and lots of things going on in their lives, just like you and I. I don't think we can neatly box them into any kind of label or, or box. You know, we want that because it's easier for us to understand them. But of course, they're, they have many different motivations. So everything you've said there, I think a little bit is true <laughs> in a way. However, I don't think any one thing is, is accurate. So I think that um, Anne's family was ambitious, but that's not a dirty word. I think somehow that's turned into, I don't know, the, the Berlins, this ambitious family, horrid. They were ambitious like every single other family at court. You weren't at court unless you had ambitions. That's the place where you went to curry favour and to try and improve your standing. That's just the way it worked. There's nothing you know, strange about that. They weren't unique for that is what I suppose I'm trying to say. Um, so yeah, they were ambitious. That's, that's right. I think, and I don't think that she was the, the sort of schema that people sometimes make her out to be. I don't think she purposely, uh, schemed to set Catherine aside or anything like that. I think she, when Henry showed interest in her, she saw an opportunity to improve the country and to better the lives of the English people. I think she generally and genuinely believed that she could do that. I don't think it, you know, I, I think she actually thought that she could make a difference and that she could bring something new and fresh and and beneficial to the country. So it's it's a little tricky, yeah, because it's hard to, to kind of just pinpoint one thing. So I think all those factors kind of played a bit of a part, but I do think she felt genuinely that she could improve the situation and bring something new to the country. The way she became queen and rose to power was controversial on a lot of levels, but when she and Henry first got together, he was still married to Catherine of Aragon. And then, you know, she was she was there for a time of such huge change in in the court, in the kingdom, you know, and she was a huge catalyst and like a a figurehead of that change. And so I imagine that would have really impacted her life at court. I'm wondering if you can talk us through, tell us a little bit what her life might have been like at court, kind of what were her roles, what were the expectations, what were the kind of things that would have been top of mind for her? 
Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And, you know, there were moments that were very challenging for Anne, but there were a lot of good moments as well. So in terms of the role, maybe we'll, we'll start there, in terms of the role of a queen, that, that we're lucky that we have a lot of really great sources that tell us about what a queen should be doing. And Christine de Pizan is one brilliant source. And in her book, The Treasure of the City of Ladies, I believe it's called. So around, I think it's from around 1400, but it uh, most of it, does relate really well to the Tudor queens and applies to them, I should say. So Anne knew what the role was, and that role was, of course, you were kind of like the ultimate hostess, I suppose, in a way. You know, you had to provide, you had to preside, sorry, over all the court uh, ceremonies and celebrations, that kind of thing. There was that aspect. Of course, you had to be very charitable and distribute um, arms and, and and show your piety in a very public way. That was very important, your chastity, your modesty, your piety. Um, you had to build links of patronage. This was crucial to any queen and any king really as well. So you had to build those ties with the nobility and, and other subjects in order to, I suppose, support your husband's reign and in order to support your own reign really as well. Um, and you have to reflect the magnificence of the court that you are in. And that requires you to be able to do lots of different things, including dressing the part, of course, uh, including being extremely good at all the pastimes because you are somebody, a sort of figurehead that people need to be able to emulate. So you need to be doing all the right things and behaving in the right way. D interesting because Christine de Pizan speaks about sobriety in dress. This does not apply <laughs> at the Tudor court. It was completely the opposite. You needed to display your magnificence and your wealth in your, in your dress and in your jewellery but everything else is still pretty much the same as, as the 14th um, and 15th centuries. So piety, and of course, sorry, I missed the, one of the most important ones, bearing heirs. That was, of course, a duty of a queen consort to ensure that the dynasty is protected. Yeah, I think they're sort of the main roles. And can you remind me what your other part of the question was? Uh, I don't know. You've just given me so much to chew on. I'm thinking of five <laughs> different questions. Um well, I think that essentially answers it, the roles and kind of what she would have experienced at court. And it, it leads me into another area that you've mentioned and I'm really interested in. So let's talk a little bit about fashion and dress, because we tend to think of fashion as just a something surface level, something potentially trivial, but it really wasn't in the Tudor court. Anne was forever on display and what she wore was really vital and it 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 said a lot more than you might think. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of Anne's relationship to dress and the kinds of things she might have been wearing and and the import of those things? Absolutely. And you're you're absolutely right. It was not a trivial thing as we might think about it today. We might buy a piece of clothing, you know, get rid of it next week, get something else. No. So clothing was of crucial importance to to queenship to this whole display of magnificence it it reflected your status so it was incredibly important and a tutor person could look at another tutor person and immediately know what their status was you know that doesn't really I suppose it's a little bit like if we see someone with a designer handbag or something like that but in a very kind of minor way so if we go back to early in in Henry and Anne's relationship 
he starts giving her gifts, very expensive gifts of clothing and jewelry. And this is, of course, a sign of favor. So everyone that sees her and sees her wearing something that they know Henry has has given her immediately understands that there's been a shift in this relationship. And one interesting gift that he does give her of clothing um, are some they're called nightgowns sometimes, but they're basically a loose gown, you know, but mag- not like the, the sort of dressing gowns that you and I would wear to, you know, sit on the couch or watch TV. These are of incredibly beautiful fabrics, fur-lined, fur-edged, and he gives her some gifts. And And the tailor that's making them is Catherine of Aragon's tailor. So I just always think this poor man, like, you know, he has to kind of be very careful and walk this tightrope, you know, and Henry's affections for Anne, but then, of course, he's also still serving the Queen. So they're a sign of favour, firstly, basically. Um, they're also very important because they they reflect different allegiances, I suppose. So clothing reflects different allegiances. So, for example, you know, if Anne's wanting to emphasise her, her French um, links, she might, of course, appear in a French hood or that kind of thing. We know Catherine of Aragon sometimes when she wanted to really emphasize her Spanish heritage would wear a more Spanish style um, gown or or outfit. So they reflect those allegiances like that as well. Um, Of course, um, livery, which is clothing that was given to your household is incredibly important because this extends the queen's presence at court. So even if Anne was not able to, to, obviously she can't be everywhere at the same time, her household members are in her livery and everyone knows they're probably wearing her badge or her colours and people know that's the Queen's people. And it was so important, in fact, that Lady Lyle, which was living in Calais during Anne's reign, was absolutely, you know, I don't know how many letters she wrote, four or five that survive, absolutely begging to be given this livery, Anne's livery. She wanted to wear it in Calais because it shows a sense of belonging. You are part of, you know, the Queen's household. So it's, it's incredible important. It also, of course, makes a lot of political statements. So, for example, in 1534, the only surviving contemporary likeness of Anne Boleyn is a portrait medal. It's tiny. It's it's like the size of a coin. Um, and she is in, she's, she's seen dressed in an English, what we would call an English gable hood, so not her typical, you know, French hood that she was associated with. Um, and it does appear that the, that she's wearing pieces that were in fact part of the Queen's wardrobe. So that these are pieces that pass on to the other Queens and that she probably got from Catherine of Aragon. So she's making a very clear statement there that she is Henry's legitimate wife and that she's English. You know, she's she's absolutely English and she does it again at her execution. She chooses the English gable hood and she dresses carefully and beautifully in order to, again, assert her her legitimacy, even at that last moment, and her um, Englishness, because she's always associated with the French, but, of course, she was English-born and a very much an English queen as well. So um, we've talked about the fact that it can represent kind of racial identity depending on what you're wearing, and it can also promote your family interests at court through gift-giving and through that the ties of patronage and through livery, And I suppose just to end, I I should say that Anne also was just incredibly naturally elegant. And you probably know, you can probably think of a person now that you know that just looks good in everything and just knows how to put pieces together. This was Anne. And this possibly, of course, came from her time 
in the glittering European courts that she grew up in. So people tried to emulate her and they tried to copy her. It didn't always work exactly, but she was known for being incredibly elegant and stylish and knowing how to, to use clothing to reinforce her status as well. It's really interesting to me that the clothing of the queen passes down from queen to queen. I mean, it takes a very, it takes a certain kind of confidence to be able to rock an ex-wife's clothes and kind of make them your own, um, especially in Anne's position, because she was really the, you know, she was the second wife of his six. And now we know how many, you know, wives he was going to go on to have. So it's like, oh, yes, she's just one of many. But at the time, she was, they were breaking every rule. This was just revolutionary. And Catherine of Aragon had been queen for, what, 20 plus years? And so it was like, this was a whole new world in many ways for this dynasty and the court. So I imagine that she had to think really carefully about what she was wearing and, and to have to, or to choose to wear Catherine's clothes. It's just mind-boggling to me. <laughs> it is a little strange, isn't it? I know. I know for our sort of modern ears, it's it seems kind of weird and um, that you would wear, especially, you know, once she died, it's like, oh, this is strange. And especially once Anne was executed, that then you'd think Jane wouldn't want to touch any of Anne's clothes. But in fact, we still see the certain pieces. Um, and this is not every piece of clothing, obviously. However, clothing was so incredibly expensive. That's, I suppose, the other point to make. Um, Henry apparently spent near around £4,000 per year. This is pounds in Tudor times, not pounds now, which I think is something like £1.5 million today or something like ridiculous like that. He spent that much money on his clothing per year. So this, this demonstrates just how important it was to look the part, to look magnificent. You have to dazzle everyone around you. And they, they wore, both Anne and Henry loved colour. So in all the accounts, we have not only a variety of um, materials, just incredibly uh, lavish materials, mostly being imported from Europe. So Henry basically had first dibs. So when the merchants would come into London with all their new wares, Henry got to see it all first because, of course, he has to have the best of everything. And I imagine Anne also saw everything and, and selected. They did use some homegrown kind of wool materials, but usually for, liver, for, for their household members, basically, because, of course, everyone in your household has to look good. There can't be anyone kind of walking around not looking great because they are a reflection of your magnificence as well. So where Anne is reflecting Henry's court, her household is reflecting her magnificence. So it's 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 a matter of really just dazzling everyone. And ambassadors are often commenting on what these people were wearing. You know, they go into quite a lot of detail. So there's a variety of, of just stunning fabrics, but there's also this incredible use of color. So that it's it's very vibrant and very out there, probably not everyone's taste. I quite like kind of subtle colors at the moment, <laughs> you know, whites, grays. So I don't know what I'd think if I kind of fell into Tudor England, but it was certainly eye-catching. And if you imagine the, you know, that some of their clothing, of course, had had actual real gold thread and silver thread, and imagine that with candlelight and how incredible that must have looked. It's, yeah, it's it's quite amazing. Yeah, it's dazzling to think about, as you say, you know, this cloth of gold and cloth of silver and the the, the pearls and the diamond, you know, girdles. And it's just like, well, it's, it would have been so resplendent and i think to our eyes it just would have been so bright and you know so rich like ever the tudors were all you know 
more is more, color on color on color. I think it would it would be amazing to be able to see. So let's talk a little bit about the court, about the places that Anne spent time. I It's my understanding that the court moved fairly regularly, so they would go to different palaces and, and different locations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what these places were like where Anne spent so much of her time? Absolutely, yes. That's one of my favorite subjects, talking about Tudor places. So, uh, so look, Anne spent, yes, you're absolutely right. They moved around a lot. There were a number of reasons for that. I suppose one is just for health reasons. When you literally have around a thousand people living in a palace, you need to move regularly so that it can be cleaned and whatnot. But there's also, of course, um, the plague affected their movements a lot. And during summer, they always, well, I say always, most of the time, upped and left London and went on what we call a royal progress. So these were magnificent progresses throughout the countryside. So they're trying to get away from the plague, um, the sweating sickness. But however, they're also, this is also an opportunity to, of course, check on what your subjects are doing and to show your magnificence to a wider range of people. Because normally, of course, this is you know, it's on display at court where there's a select group of people, but what you want is for regular everyday people to to see you because without the support of, and we see this later in the reign, without the support of the people, you know, your your reign is in trouble. So so they go off and they try and, and show favour to people by visiting people during this time. They um, will stay with people often to their financial ruin, unfortunately, and probably more so in Elizabeth's time. She was absolutely famous for doing that, just, you know, coming to your house and totally ruining you. You had to take out loans, and that was very common, people taking out loans because they know the king and queen are coming. Um, So there's that side of things, which we can talk about more, if you like, after the, the progress. However, they're also moving just among the houses in the Thames Valley as well. So places like Greenwich Palace, absolutely stunning. And in fact, that is a, an absolute Tudor favourite. And it was one of Anne's favourite palaces. So that's on the, the southern bank of the Thames. It was probably where Anne, I think, where Anne spent most of her time during her reign. It was a, a large courtyard house like so many others, built of brick. It had an incredible river frontage because they're, they're travelling mainly in London by barge up and down the Thames. Um, there, you know, it had king's apartments, queen's apartments. It had a, a, an entertainment complex like so many of these palaces did. They all have stunning gardens for the, the queen and court to walk in. They have orchards. They have, in, in terms of Greenwich, it has Greenwich Park, so they're hunting there as well and doing all their other pastimes. Um, so this is a, a palace that she loved and that all the Tudors loved, actually, to be honest. Another favourite was Whitehall Palace. So this is near Westminster. It was originally called York Place and still, even still in, in Anne's reign, some people are calling it still York Place. It was originally Thomas Wolsey. So I'm sure you've probably heard of Thomas Wolsey. So he needed to when he fell out of favour, he was doing his best to kind of get back on Henry's good side. So he, in fact, surrendered all this property to the king. And I'm, I'm thinking it was around, that was in, I think, October 1529, 1528, 1529, I think. And one of the places he surrenders is Whitehall Palace or York Place. So this is a real symbol of a new beginning because it's at the peak of Anne's ascendancy, you know, her relationship with Henry. This is a huge place and it's a place that they work on together to redesign. I think two or three days after Wolsey handed it over to Henry, 
he makes a trip there with Anne and Anne's mother, Elizabeth, to go and see the newly acquired palace and the riches and to start discussing the redesign. This is, it has kind of an emotional link, I suppose, as well for Anne, because this is where she makes her first public appearance. So you've probably heard or at least seen on the Tudors or something, the the, the courtly revel, which is called the Chateau Vert, and Anne plays perseverance in that. And, and, you know, it's very dramatically kind of shown on the Tudors where Henry grasps her and sees her and, you know, all that sort of thing. However, it was actually where Anne made her, her debut back at the English court after having been in France for many years. And, and it's also, interestingly, where she marries Henry. So on the 29th of January, they have this sort of secret or private, however you want to refer to it, ceremony in the upper chamber of a building called the Holbein Gate. And, and so that's where that takes place. And so they redesign the palace together. They spend hours working and poring over plans and different things. And later on, it's also where Jane Seymour marries Henry as well after Anne. So there, and I should mention one more of the Thames Valley palaces, and that's Hampton Court. During this is, oh, Hampton Court is so beautiful. But and and I should say this is the only one that has anything left above ground. So Whitehall and Greenwich, there's nothing left, sadly. It's an absolute tragedy. Um, so you need your imagination when you walk around that you can still go and and see what's there, but there's nothing left of the Tudor building above ground. Hampton Court, there's plenty left, and all the, anyone who was anyone in Tudor times visited Hampton Court Palace, so it's a great place. But Anne didn't spend too much time at Hampton Court because they were redesigning the Queen's apartments during her reign. So she is there. She's there briefly in 1533. They're back, I think, in 1534, and then she pays a last visit in 1535 as well. So, another, you know, again, it all the palaces had kings and queens rooms they had um whitehall and hampton court have great halls they have a series of apartments for the king and queen to live in and to you know spend time in during the day they have orchards they have gardens they have entertainment complexes hampton court in the end had tennis courts bowling alleys anything you can think of tilt yard it's all there they're really pleasure palaces i suppose that you could call them so those three are probably the main ones in the Thames Valley. And then, of course, depending where they were, they stayed at lots of other places too. And Anne would have always had a bunch of ladies with her to to wait on her. Is that right? Like how many ladies are we talking about? Yeah. And how often would she find herself alone, if ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the truth is never alone. Really, that would have been incredibly rare. There's at least two women sleeping in your bedroom, one at the end of your bed, one at the side of your bed. And we know this from the tower. She has a lady at the end of her bed on a pallet and, and someone else in her room as well. This is very common. They're with you when you go to the toilet. They're with you, you know, during your, your private devotions. They're there at all times. So I suppose that's one of the, the arguments or the factors to consider when weighing up whether Anne was guilty of the crimes for which she was accused because to to have kept up affairs with five men, including her own brother, for three years in a palace where people are constantly watching you. And there's uh, Anne writes a letter in early 1535, so things get a little bit tricky for her in 1535. Um, and she says that she she's telling a French ambassador and, and she basically says she knows that all eyes are on her. She's feeling quite stressed. She's She's on the verge of a bit of a nervous breakdown at the start of 1535 for a number of different reasons. And one of those is that she's constantly watched, absolutely constantly watched, not just by Henry's men, but by her own ladies, which, you know, half of them perhaps are then passing information on to other people. So 
It's rare. She had a group of a group of noble women that were kind of her companions, I suppose you could say. But then, of course, she has an entire household, up to a hundred people, you know, serving her. What you might call kind of below stairs, I suppose. But then she has her noble companions that are there to do the pastimes of, of noble Tudor women. So they're embroidering, they're sewing, they're they're discussing, you know, events of the day and the time. They're they're worshiping together. They're working on different charitable things. So you know, maybe sewing. Anne was known to Anne was very generous and very charitable, and she gave out a lot of arms. And she also, when she was on progress, handed out clothing, actual pieces of clothing to people. So they worked on those. Um, you know, singing, playing cards, dancing, all those sort of things. So she had that group of women, noble women that accompanied her, but then she has a whole host of other people doing the more menial tasks, I suppose, you know, the day-to-day looking after the rooms and her clothing and all that kind of thing as well. I'm so interested in the relationship between her, a queen and her ladies, because as you say, she would have been with them constantly. They would have been doing so much together. It's such an intimate relationship, but also potentially so fraught because she can never be totally sure that one of them isn't informing. And also, some of them might end up being her rival for Henry's affection. And in fact, you know, one becomes exactly that because it's his his next wife, Jane, is at one point one of Anne's ladies. Is that right? That's that is right. A lot of the information we have about we basically we don't know very much about Anne and Jane's relationship. A lot of it, what the little that we do have, comes from Elizabeth's reign. So it comes from later, comes from after Anne's death. So it's it's tricky. It does appear that yes, Jane was one of Anne's ladies, and so that kind of you can kind of dismiss then that myth that you know during the fifteen thirty five progress when they did stop at Jane's family home at Wolf Hall that Henry spotted Jane and, and just completely fell in love. You know, that whole idea is is kind of a little bit ridiculous because Jane had been one of Catherine's <laughs> ladies-in-waitings too. So she's been around for a long time. The king knows her. She has obviously not caught his eye until he's looking for the complete opposite of Anne. So when he's tired of Anne, he's looking for something that is just so not Anne. And, of course, he ends up you know, looking at Jane. However, so yeah, we don't know very much about, you know, was she at court all the time? They they kind of came and left depending on what was going on. And, you know, if they had leave to leave the court for different reasons. So we we just don't know too much about that. But yes, yeah, she would have had her favoured ladies that um, she chatted with. I think you're right, though. I think there would have been an aspect of, you know, especially when we get to to May, we see this, we see her ladies being questioned by Thomas Cromwell. The evidence, unfortunately, is sketchy because a lot of it was either um, intentionally disposed of because there were so many holes in that crown case. So, or it was destroyed at some other point, you know, after it. So, but they are questioning her ladies. And so that is putting them in a difficult position because I don't think any one of us would like to be questioned by Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> no. Well, before we move on and and talk more about kind of the last year or two of Anne's life, I want to talk a little bit more about the places where they spent time. So I have I have two essential questions. One is something you brought up earlier. Why why was it so expensive and costly to host the king and queen? And also in some of these really large palaces, where were they going to the bathroom? What was the bathroom situation? <laughs> 
Yeah, very good. I know people love bathroom <laughs> kind of um, questions, but it's true because we, you know, we we want to understand them as as human beings, and in order to connect to them, we need to know how they did these everyday things. So they had what were called garderobes, and I'm not talking about your everyday person. I'm I'm simply now talking about the king and queen and the very high levels of aristocracy here. So garderobes, basically, essentially a sort of toilet. I guess. Um, so there are still some surviving ones. And now I'm trying to think if my brain will. Yes, Acton Court. So Acton Court is one of the locations where Henry and Anne stayed. And this is a really good example, actually, Acton Court, because Nicholas Points, who was so the fam- the Points family owned this house. And Anne and Henry were scheduled to stay there for a weekend. Nicholas Points actually added an entire wing to his house <laughs> in order to host the king and queen. So there's your answer to the, ex- the expenses. He literally built, you know, if he built an entire wing, two levels, three or four chambers per level, and one of them has the gutter open, it survives. So you can actually tour Acton Court at different times of the year. And I have done myself and it's it's an amazing experience. In So a little bit about, I suppose, the series of rooms. So you can't just provide the king and queen with one bedroom. (laughs) This is not going to be sufficient. They each need their own suite of rooms. That's the first thing. And the suite of rooms at Hampton Court or Whitehall or Greenwich could have up to six or seven chambers or more. So, yes, if you're hosting, you have to at least provide them with, you know, three or four rooms each. So they don't stay in the same room. Uh, Although what happens after, you know, lights go out at night, of course, they can share bedrooms and all that sort of thing. However, they need to have their own space during the day. If there is a great hall, that is the first public room. Not all the palaces have them, though. So, But if there is, that's your sort of first public room. That's where people can mill around, ambassadors can hang out and, and get all the goss and, and see what's going on, who's coming and who's going. The next room is the great watching chamber, which, in fact, survives at Hampton Court. That's where you're going to have guards posted at the presence chamber. That's like the next level. So people, the the great watching chamber was usually for people of court to dine in, you know, um, household officials, that kind of thing. The presence chamber is by invitation only, and there are guards posted at that door. That's a little bit more of a relaxed space for the king or queen to host guests and to dine publicly. The next room is the privy chamber you know, the name says it all. This is a private chamber where only their most favoured invited guests are going to be. Then there is a bedroom after that, like a, a bedroom, but there can also be studies and dressing rooms and all other sorts of, of things coming off these rooms. However, you need to at least provide these three rooms for them, a great watching chamber presence and a privy or a bedroom, something like that. Acton Court has the three surviving still where Henry stayed. So it's a, a really good chance to there's a lot of the other palaces have been what I call Victorianized, so walls put up or walls taken down. But at Acton Court, you get this sense of moving from those outer public rooms into the more private rooms. And in the bedroom, there is a garderobe. So there's a toilet where Henry would have relieved himself. Very nice to go and have a look at it and imagine King Henry VIII in the toilet. It's, um, yeah, interesting. So it was it kind of like a fancy-looking toilet that then it was like a hole and it would just the refuse would just fall down into I don't know a a dirt cavity or like a moat or (laughs) yeah I think sometimes yeah there were different ones I think sometimes they were like little thrones that had to be Ah. emptied so I don't know like a sort of potty if you can imagine a child's potty Um, and other times Hampton Court had a great jakes it sounds kind of revolting but it was 
multiple um, garter robes where men went in or whoever and sat together and, you know, a bit Roman style, I guess, in, in a way. So they're, they're differences. But I think the, the king and queens would have been absolutely pristine, probably velvet, you know, and that kind of thing. We don't, you know, that doesn't survive. What we just have is the sort of space where they would have. But even there they're attended. The king has a groom of the stool. That is a person that is assisting them with these very private functions. This is an incredible, like now we think, Oh, gross. What, like, who would do that job? It was an incredibly privileged position. And we see this in, in Anne's time because, of course, Sir Henry Norris, which was the groom of the stool, is in fact one of the men executed alongside her because he's in such a privileged position that that is, of course, very handy for Thomas Cromwell to get rid of him and place somebody else there. So it's, it's, it's a privilege to be with the king at this time because, you know, he's spending a lot of time there especially as he gets older, he's having a lot of tummy issues. And so it's a chance for you to be alone with the king or the queen. And you are able to, of course, talk to them. You're able to hear what they've got to say. You're able perhaps to maybe influence them in some way. You're able to put forward your family members for certain positions while no one else is listening. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's funny how now we think, oh, that's disgusting. But it was actually a really sought after job. Right, such a unique position where you can really get to know the king or queen and, and become intimate yeah. with them in a way most people couldn't. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about Anne as queen. She wasn't queen for a, an overly long time, but I'm wondering what you consider no. her strengths as a queen and perhaps some of her weaknesses or the things that started to get her into trouble. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think. It's a very complex right. question, a very complex issue, um, but a very interesting one as well. I think she had a lot of a lot of qualities and a lot of she was she was good at a lot of things. She was um, incredibly intelligent and learned. She'd had a very good education, and this really assisted in her performing her role as queen. We see a couple of the other her successes come undone because of their level of education. Um, so although she wasn't prepared to be queen like Catherine was, for example, Catherine of Aragon, who from, you know, her earliest memory would remember her, the fact that she was going to be England's queen, that would have been told to her, she would have been prepared. She saw her parents, um, the greatest, one of the greatest monarchs in, in Catholic Europe. So she had an incredible example and she was really intelligent as well and very learned. So Anne is is also has a fantastic education, but she's not raised to be a queen. She probably wanted to serve the queen, and we do know that from a letter that she wrote. And you know, run a very uh, run a noble household would have been probably what she was hoping for when she was younger. And then, of course, this opportunity presents itself. So her level of education and her ability to to debate issues of the day, her ability to discuss matters with ambassadors. She's incredibly good at this game of, you know, not just the game of courtly love, which she is, of course, highly skilled at because she's she's spent seven years at the, the court in France and she's learnt from the best how to play this game. And I suppose it's a it's a bit of a it's a tricky concept to kind of define, but it's a sort of framework that dictates how men and women interact. And it's a lot about conversation and sort of witty conversation. And it borders on almost, um, I suppose, there's a lot of sexual innuendo. And so you have to be very careful to be walking that fine line to not take it too far. And unfortunately, we see that happen. I'll come to that in a moment. 
So she's very good at that. She's kind of the queen bee of this game of courtly love. As we mentioned, she's exceptional in her appearance and her elegance. You know, she's absolutely brilliant at all the pastimes, all the things that queens should be good at. She rides, she hawks, she hunts. She's exceptional at needlework like Catherine of Aragon was too. She can sing. She's she's very musical and we have one of her books, Survives, today as well. She dances. She's, you know, she speaks at least, she's conversant in at least, obviously, English, and French, but it's possible that she had other languages as well. Not as good as her daughter. Her daughter excelled in languages, but um, but Anne was was certainly um, had a, a good level of of languages as well. She is, of course, learned in all the the material of the day, the religious material of the day. She is passionate about reform, so she's she's looking at some of these more reformed texts. And but she's a Catholic woman. What she's wanting is to, to um, reduce the amount of corruption that's in the church. It was, it was incredibly corrupt, and that is what she's fighting against, and she wants to increase education. She's very passionate about education. So she is an, an advocate of, of education and of bringing the Bible to the people in, in their language, in the vernacular. Um, she's very good at, at distributing charity and largesse, as we've said. She's great at building these ties of patronage, which are vital to a queen at this time. Um, so where wasn't she that good? Which is, I think, your question. Where does she kind of come apart a little bit? And I, I think one of those areas is her personality, I suppose, and the fact that she wasn't raised to be a queen. You know, she was raised to manage a household, yes, but managing the king and court is is a little bit different. So she one of the things that queens were supposed to do was never, you know, battle with their kings, their husbands, sorry, in public, you know, agree with your husband in public. And perhaps if you have something to say, wait till a private moment and wasn't great at that. All the, you know, she, she was very outspoken and sometimes I don't think she was very good at doing that at keeping her thoughts private. Um, you know, you have to have this facade up if you're a queen. You're like a marble statue. People have to look at you and emulate you. You have to be the highest. Um, you have to be beyond reproach in in absolutely everything, in your behavior, in your comportment, in your in your public display of piety. Everything has to be absolutely perfect because reputation, and we haven't really touched on this enough yet, reputation is your protection as a queen. It is it is what you must ensure is never tarnished. And unfortunately, Anne starts on a, on the back foot here because she is the other woman. That's how the people see her. Not only does she have these kind of out there religious ideas, she is the she was Henry's mistress. That's how people are seeing her as Henry's mistress. And she has supplanted a queen that they loved, the Catholic queen, a queen that came to the throne with so much dignity and so much um you know, her nephews and nieces are all over the, the thrones of Europe. They're basically sitting on every powerful throne and doesn't have this. She doesn't have that kind of dignity. Henry raised her, whereas Catherine was not raised to be a queen. She was born a queen, if you know what I mean. So, and perhaps in the areas of modesty, maybe, you know, chastity, what I'm saying, and I'm not saying that Anne wasn't chaste, what I'm saying is the outward appearance of chastity was very important. It's this real tension because you have to, as a queen, you have to really show and demonstrate your virginity in a way and your chastity. But at the same time, you have to give all these airs and you have to be at the center of this really 
kind of sexual game of courtly love where people are constantly flirting. And, you know, so how do you do this? How do you maintain that chastity, that virginity, but yet also be really great at these at these conversations and this witty game, you know, that's so important and that Anne was so good at. And I think, you know, she, that kind of let her down a little bit and she pushed that a little bit too much. So reputation, I think, is is one area on which Anne struggled. And that's not to say because she didn't, she did anything that deserved a negative reputation. It's just that what she brought with her into her queenship made her vulnerable to attacks on her reputation, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, when she became queen, she had so much to fight against. I mean, that public perception of her was very bad. Um, and she she was the mistress. She she was the other woman. And, you know, Catherine, until her death, Catherine and Henry, at least in Catherine's eyes and in many people's eyes, were still married. So, you know, whether yeah. she was the legitimate queen or not was in question. So I imagine, you know, for every queen, but especially for Anne, it must have been like you were walking on a, you know, high wire all the time, all those expectations, and you're you're trying to toe this really, really thin line, and you have people watching you constantly. And for her, waiting for her to trip up, waiting to find some excuse to tear her down. I'm sure she had some amazing moments, but it just, it sounds so stressful and so perilous. And it doesn't surprise me that she, you know, had as many miscarriages as she did. I mean, the stress she would have had to deal with every day of her life. It's just mind boggling. Yeah, well, she had, well, we know of three recorded pregnancies. So the first, of course, she delivered Elizabeth. September 1533, she then had what people call a miscarriage, but I think was probably a stillbirth in the summer of 1534, tragically. And then 1535, late into the progress, she falls pregnant. So, and then unfortunately, she has a miscarriage with that child as well in, in late January 1536. And as you say, there was a huge amount of pressure, not just on her, but on Henry and Anne's marriage. So a lot of what I'm writing about is devoted to 1535 and just kind of trying to put the relationship into context um, because I think if you want to understand her downfall, well, you need there's a lot of things that you need to kind of be familiar with, including um, Anne and Hen the nature of Anne and Henry's relationship and the history of their relationship. But you also need a sort of good understanding of the Tudor court and how it operates, you know, kind of like what we were talking with privacy not really any at the moment. Um, uh, but then you also need to understand the pressures that were on the marriage. It was because I suppose there's there's this tendency to to think that there was all that kind of that battle, that huge battle to get to the marriage. You know, we all know about all those court cases and whatnot, all those years of them just struggling and struggling and struggling. And then they get married and it's this sort of tendency to think that then, oh, it was kind of okay. And then Henry just decided to chop her head off. But there is a lot that happens in between there that the pressures do not let up. In fact, they actually increase. So 1535 is a year of, you know, Henry and Anne's marriage is sometimes described as sunshine and storms. It really is during that year. We see that particularly um, clearly in 1535. We see the ex there are internal pressures, there are external pressures. Um, you know, there's uh, the winter of, so the winter of 1534, 1535, it's particularly a very wet winter. 
So unfortunately, the crops fail. So there is famine in early 1535. There is a rebellion that's taking place in Ireland. There is the Pope that is um, threatening to excommunicate Henry. Not only is he threatening, threatening to excommunicate Henry, he's also threatening him with a bill of deprivation. So basically he's saying he's going to, to make it okay for people to remove Henry from the throne. But he does need other people to, to enact this. And, and luckily for Henry, Charles and Francis, so Charles V and Francis I never kind of do anything about it. However, Henry doesn't know this. He doesn't know that they're not going to, like you and I, we look back with hindsight, of course. We need to always keep in mind they lived without the benefit of hindsight. So the threat of a Catholic invasion was very, very real in 1535. Catherine of Aragon was really doing her best to you know, some people say, no, she would never have, have encouraged that. I have to disagree. I think that ultimately Catherine would have done anything to to keep her title. We see her. She she refuses to give it up with her last breath. She preferred martyrdom. She preferred her daughter's martyrdom to ever saying that she was not Henry's rightful queen. So there's all that going on. There is um, internal instability. People are, there are small uprisings that they're having to kind of quelch. There are, there's lots of people that are unhappy. And so in, in around March, 1534, the Succession Act is brought in and that defines Anne as queen and pronounces the king's children with her as the lawful heirs to the throne. And this act requires an oath as well to be taken. There's then later in the year, the Act of Supremacy. So that establishes Henry as the only supreme head of the Church of England. Um, he's now that, that basically removes any right from anyone to appeal to a foreign power. So where Catherine was trying to appeal to the Pope, yeah, she really shouldn't be doing that anymore, according to this act. And then to support the Supremacy Act, uh, a new treason act is brought in in 1534 as well that states that anyone who maliciously kind of, you don't even have to do anything. All you need to do is imagine something bad happening to the king or speak something bad about the king, the queen, or any of his children, and you are in fact guilty of high treason, punishable by death. So all these, all this legislation is brought in to support this marriage um, and you know what? People are still going out there and saying things about Henry, saying things about Anne and getting into a lot of trouble for this. So there was a lot of kind of unhappiness, you know, about, about the marriage. There were people still very unhappy, people unsure what to think. You know, there was certain, not, not huge religious changes at this point, but there are some being brought in. So people are just confused. They're torn. They're not sure. Is it still Catherine the Queen? Is Anne the Queen? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what I'm supposed to be praying. It was a lot of confusion around that. Um, so there's, you know, all those pressures are on this marriage. And at the same time, you know, Anne's trying to fulfill her roles. They're trying to fall pregnant, obviously. But as you say, with all that pressure, it's very difficult. So when they do go to On Progress, and this is a long progress, this is the second longest progress of Henry's reign. It's about 14 weeks in total, and that gets extended. So they're obviously having a magnificent time together. You know, they're, um, they're intimate again, and we know that because she falls pregnant. They're doing the things they love, the things that brought them together in the first place, the hunting, the hawking, the music. They're just spending time with people that they like people that are supporting them. You know, that's who they're showing favor to. Long days out in the saddle. We've got lots of fantastic accounts of them returning home by torchlight. And this is in summer. So you can imagine if you've been to England in summer, you know, it, I went once and I really didn't see dark because I'm an early sleeper. And I was like, what? so they're returning home after 10 p.m. 
and they've been in the saddle the entire day visiting people in the area, you know, hunting, hawking. They're, they're having a great time, but then they have to return home at some point from that trip and things, yeah, get a little bit tricky after that. Yeah, speaking of which, I know this is a big ask and obviously I don't want you to give, give you know, too many of the tidbits and treasures from your book, but when when things went wrong for Anne, they really went very wrong and they went wrong quickly. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. What happens and specifically the the case that was built up against her, how did that all unfold? How did Anne end up where she did? This is the like billion dollar question. I know we we, we could talk yeah. about this for, you know, weeks on end. So I yeah, know it's a, it's a big question, but sort of broad strokes or things that yes, you find yeah. Look, I'll do, my, I'll do my best for you. And like I say, I this is the first time that I have written about Anne's downfall. So that gives you an idea that it's taken me 20 years to feel even near confident. And I still feel, you know, I, I'm lucky to have a lot of brilliant friends that I can call upon. Um, I need to make a special mention of my my buddy, Dr. Owen Emerson, because he's he just puts up with my WhatsApp messages, honestly, at any time of the day. I say to him, please don't, like, if you're sleeping, you don't need to respond. <laughs> but he loves this as much as I do. And so, he's really helped me to I suppose to get these ideas in my head and to to sharpen the arguments. You know, we 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 have similar ideas, and and I think it's really great to have someone to discuss them with. I also have the lovely Sandra Vasoli, which I adore, and and James Peacock from the Anne Boleyn Society. They've all been great in in being sounding boards. But I wanted to mention, I suppose, Sandy and Owen because they've put up with a lot from me of um, messages and different things. So trying to piece together this puzzle of Anne's downfall is extremely challenging, as you've said. I, ne- I need to start with that. And there's a lot of debate and disagreement about what caused Anne's downfall. I wish there was a simple answer. I wish I could give you one neat answer. It was Cromwell. It was this. But there actually isn't. There, There is no one neat response to what caused Anne's downfall. It was absolutely, in my mind, a perfect storm, but not one that began in April or May 1536. This was a perfect storm that started brewing way before that sword swung. So we need to keep that in mind, and which is why I'm focusing on this 18-month period because I think it gives us a good understanding of what happened. So there are moments in these, these last months of Anne's life that really change, shift the trajectory of her story, and they're key moments, and we can sort of see something happening there. Um, for example, one of them is Catherine of Aragon's death. That is a big one. So she dies on the 7th of January in 1536. What is really interesting about that event is that I suppose Henry and Anne always shown as celebrating. They're celebrating this event and perhaps there was an element, you know, Henry apparently said, oh, I'm free of war. I don't know. He, he made some crazy comments. But but Anne, in fact, pretty quickly realised that that, in fact, was to her detriment. In a strange way, and this is why this story is so amazing, in a strange way, while Catherine of Aragon lived, Anne Boleyn was safe. Catherine's death opened up a door and presented new possibilities to Henry, which he hadn't probably considered that much until that point. So unfortunately, the month just keeps getting worse. So on the 24th of January, Henry has an accident. He's training. He's not in any competition, unlike popular sort of belief. He's not in a in in a formal joust or anything. He's simply training. He's out with his with his members of the privy chamber. He's training probably for the May Day festival that's coming up, and he falls off his horse. He has an accident. 
the accounts vary. Was he unconscious for three hours? Who knows? Was he unconscious for one hour? We don't know exactly, but what we do know is this, this had a detrimental effect on Henry because he never jousted formally again after that. And this is jousting is not just like a little sport that we do because, you know, it's fun or whatever. This is absolutely inextricably linked to his honour and his ability to display his um, virility, his his kingship. So this was a big blow, a massive blow to Henry, um, and his health just declines after that. To make matters worse, at around the same time, unfortunately, Anne miscarries their baby. So, and by all accounts, this was a, a son. That's we, we again. We don't have very much information, but what we do know is that the child was the the you know the baby was probably around sixteen weeks, maybe four months or something like that. Um, so this is a tra- this is an absolute tragic event and so traumatic for Anne and traumatic for Henry, I suppose as well. It's often said that this ha- took place on the day that Catherine of Aragon was buried. You know, again, we don't know if that was exactly the day, but it was around then. It's from this moment that we see a, a just a very clear shift in all the evidence. The next month, the 10th of February, is the first mention of Jane Seymour by name, linking her with the king. I don't think that's any accident or surprise. You know, the king is now looking to display his manhood and virility to demonstrate it to the world in other ways. He can't do it in the tilt yard anymore. So he needs to find other ways. So he's found Jane. He's 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 angry at Anne. He's very angry at Anne. Um, so things are kind of a little bit, there's a facade that is maintained. There's definitely a facade that's maintained that everything's okay, but it's clear and there is a lot of evidence, which I go through in the book, that Henry is looking for a way out of this marriage. He's done. He's closed his heart to Anne. Um, she has not lived up to his expectations. Henry wanted her to be, to somehow be like the, the ravishing, captivating mistress, but to also be the pious virgin queen. She just didn't live up to his extremely unrealistic um, expectations. And like I said, she was vulnerable to that sort of charge. She had no one that was going to protect her. She didn't have the Emperor, Emperor Charles V like Catherine of Aragon did. She didn't have anyone except her family at court. So we see things change. He's definitely looking for a way out. We don't know what that, that it seems to be that they were looking for a way to annul the marriage. There is talk that she had a pre-contract. Um, so they're, they're just looking for a way and Cromwell is helping him. There's no doubt about that. So on the 2nd of April, that's another one of those moments where things shift. So we've gone from just looking for a way to annul the marriage to get rid of her somehow to something happens after this. Um, the game turns deadly. There is a definite change and there's it's it's the Passion Sunday sermon and Anne's um, chaplain or Amina Skip, he, he gives a sermon in front of the whole court, the king, Thomas Cromwell, everyone else, which is incredibly controversial. He's... <laughs> He would not have done this without Anne's support. So basically, we get to we get an insight into Anne's mind through this sermon, and this is one of the things that I just find so incredible about her. She realized the vulnerable position she was in. She knew it, of course. She was incredibly intelligent, and still she she battled on, and she made a real stand on this day. And and it's a hugely long sermon, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. However. One of the key things is that uh, Skip compares Cromwell to to Haman, which is the biblical kind of traitor who is in fact executed in the end. So it's a definite attack on Thomas Cromwell. There is no doubt about it. And she's not happy with a lot of things. Um, she's not happy with what he's encouraging in terms of the dissolution of the monasteries. So they kind of 
they have differences about this, but this is not to say that they were ever friends. I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions we have about Anne's life that Cromwell was her ally or good friend. I, I just don't see the evidence. I don't think this is true. I think he did what he did. And he says it himself, actually. Chapuy, the imperial ambassador, asks him, it was talking about Anne and saying, you know, kind of why did you pave the way for the marriage, you know, if you're not her supporter? And Cromwell says that he paved the way for the marriage because Henry was so bent upon it. So Cromwell is Henry's man. He's he's doing what the king is, is telling him to do. He was also loyal to Thomas Wolsey. And, again, another area of debate, how much Anne had to do with his downfall. But she at least played some part, you know, how much we can debate, but she played some part. So they were never friends. You know, he put up with her because while she was in favour, that's what you do. If you're an intelligent person at court, you put up with people that are in favour. And while the king's favour... Um, protected her, there's really nothing you can do. But the minute he removes that favour, that's it. It's open season. So she makes this attack on him. Um, 18th of April is another one of those moments. Chapuy visits court. It's it's There's a huge, very long account about this day. But basically what happens is that Cromwell realises that he doesn't, he cannot be certain of Henry's support. This basic, you know, it's, it's like pages and pages in my book. But so basically what it comes down to is that up until that point, Cromwell thought he was protected by the king. He thought that there's nothing really that Anne could do to harm him. You know, she'd threatened him before. The year, the previous year she'd already threatened him. She said, look, if I find out you're really close with Chapuis, I'm going to have your head type thing. And she made these – this is the type of woman she was. She was no wallflower. Um, but until that point, I think Cromwell felt that he was protected and he could rely on Henry's favour and – the events of 18th of April show him he basically gets a very public, public tell-off by the king. And all months and months of negotiations that Henry knows he's been doing, Henry basically turns his back on just because he can, because that's what Henry does. So um, we have the 24th of April where the commissions of Oyer and Termina are set up. Um, the following day, Parliament is called. There's all these just ominous things going on. May Day weekend, unfortunately, the stress, the absolute she trauma and stress of the months get the better of Anne and she she makes some silly moves and she um, she speaks a little bit unguardedly with certain people and this is these rumours are spread and they reach the king very quickly and the, we see the first arrest on the 30th of April and then there are more arrests and different things come out while she's in the tower. Importantly, I guess... On the, on the 12th of May, the men accused alongside her, Sir Norris, Weston, Brereton and Smeaton are all tried at Westminster Hall. They're all found guilty. The only one that actually pleads guilty is Smeaton. The rest do not. The following day, her household's dissolved. So she's not been tried yet, but her household is dissolved. The 15th of May, Anne and Georgia tried because of their status. They're tried by um, a group of their own peers presided over by the Duke of Norfolk, their uncle. Um, of course, you know, it's unsurprising they're found guilty. All the accounts say that they both defended themselves with, you know, absolute elegance and dignity and that people, especially with George, thought, no, he's going to be set free. He's going to be set free. That was the, the kind of talk. But there was no way that he was going to be set free. He was, in fact, Anne's biggest supporter. So, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And then on the 17th, they're executed. And on the 19th, Anne's executed. Now, that's a very, very, very fast kind of going through it. However, I suppose to keep in mind, 
the charges like what and and the charges so she was charged with adultery incest and high treason so she was accused of plotting the king's death and this comes from a conversation she had with sir henry norris on that may day weekend where like i say she was under a huge amount of stress and and unfortunately said a few things she shouldn't have and going back to the treason act it was in fact treason to speak or imagine the king's death and she had a conversation with Sir Henry Norris where she said, um, you look for dead men's shoes for if all came to the king but good, you would look to have me. That, in fact, is treason. So she handed that to them, you know, on a silver platter. Um, she's also accused of making fun of the king and his dress. That is actually brought up at the trial, which gives you a window into Henry's personality more than anything else. And apparently the Imperial Ambassador also mentions that George apparently and Anne together had laughed at some songs that the king had had made and some poetry and songs. There were no witnesses. Nobody gave evidence. This was an absolute foregone conclusion. Of course, once the men are found guilty of having adultery, how could she not be guilty? It's it's just ridiculous. Um, and then the sentence for Anne was that, that shall she shall be burned here within the tower or have thy head smitten off pending on, you know, what the king's pleasure was, as should be known. Interestingly as well, at George's trial, um, he's handed a note and asked not to read it aloud because it has to do with the king's impotence. But just in such, you know, brilliant Berlin fashion, I think, and it shows you the side of George and Anne that must have graded on the king terribly, especially after his accident where he wasn't, you know, as, as capable as he was before. And there's George completely and utterly charismatic by all accounts, you know, he's just magnetic and he's good at everything. Um, he's told not to read out this particular note and he reads it out loud. And it in fact is a, a, an accusation that Anne had told his wife that Henry had neither strength nor virtue or vigor when it came to copulating with women. So, he gets that kind of last dig in because he knows it's, you know, it's over. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that says a lot about their their character as in Anne and George. So that's a little bit about the charges and about the sort of events that change the trajectory. But I think we also have to keep in mind Henry's personality. We have to also keep in mind the nature of their relationship. He was completely and utterly obsessed with her and pursued her with you know, with such vigor. And then when he, when she didn't live up to his expectations for various reasons, he pursued leaving her with the same vigor as he'd once pursued to have her. So there is no doubt that Henry wanted to be rid of her. And then circumstances led to, you know, these charges that I don't think the king for a second believed that she'd had sex with five men, including her own brother. But I think it suited him because it served the the what he wanted, which was to be rid of her and to start afresh with somebody totally different to Anne. Well, it's such a fascinating and tumultuous story. And I suppose in terms of the charges, accusing a woman of adultery was one of the quickest, you know, most surefire way to get the job done as far as Henry was concerned. And as you said before, you know, a queen's reputation was everything. And you know, for her reputation to be like that, that was the ultimate way to take down a queen's reputation to say she'd been unchaste and, you know, both in word and deed. So it's, it's incredibly sad because as you say, she, she seems to me like a woman with such fire, so intelligent, and she had big dreams and big ideas and wanted to make a difference and wanted to be a good queen. But it seems like the odds were, the deck was stacked against her really from the beginning. 
Yeah, it absolutely was. She was incredibly vibrant and incredibly, and you know, and I think George was as well. And I think when you think of them, it's so easy to forget that we're talking about five actual human beings and to imagine them, you know, all there one moment and then gone the next, that the gaping hole that must have left at the court because they were, and we know Thomas Wyatt writes poetry about it, you know, where he's basically mourning their loss and, and all this sort of thing and how charismatic they were and how much they'll be missed. It was an absolutely extraordinary event. That's the other thing I think we we need to keep in mind. This was not something that had been seen before. Yes, Henry had obviously had people executed before, but, you know, an anointed queen of, of England executed, you know, five men with her. It it just didn't it didn't sit well with the people, and you know she wasn't the most popular queen. But there were there were grumblings already very quickly, especially when the the day after her execution, Henry is formally engaged to Jane Seymour. Like, you know, that's that's ridiculous. Even Chapuis is commenting on the fact that that yeah, they're just basically convicted on gossip and just you know talk. There were no witnesses. There was nothing substantial at all. There is just this story that they've concocted, aided by her reputation, which was not one like Catherine's, you know, as, as allegations like this would never have stuck with Catherine. There would have been no way in the world because of how successfully she'd performed her role as queen, because of how successfully she'd fostered this incredible reputation. She'd, um, as Margaret B said, she'd earned this, this uh, religious and moral capital that then she drew on during her difficult years so that no criticism was ever laid on her doorstep, even when she was defying her husband, which is something they weren't meant to do at the time, you know. So Anne was let down because she was she was outwardly seen as capable of having committed adultery with five men because she came in as the other woman. Why not? Like, you know. So it's it's terribly sad because she was very brilliant and and as you say had um, had really good intentions I think of, of supporting people and and enhancing the the country and the court but it was just there was just too much stress too much pressure too much trauma um, and with the likes of Henry and Thomas Cromwell against you there is literally nothing that you can do at all in that situation. Yeah, well, I think she'd be happy to know that you know. Her legacy has been that she has hordes of big fans and Anne enthusiasts, you know, throughout the the decades and into today who, you know, really champion her and and see the best in her and the legacy that she left behind. Yeah, I think so. I, I hope so. Anyway, you know, I see I write with her. I've got her portrait on my desk because I write and when it you know, gets a little bit tricky, I kind of look at her and just willing her to help me get to the end um, and to do her story justice, I suppose, because, you know, it's just there's just so many, so many myths and misconceptions about everything really about her life. But particularly towards the end, we get a lot, there's a lot of rumors and stories going around. So it's very hard to sift through all the accounts and find, okay, well, what actually did happen and what is, what you know, what mm. is the, the rumor and the gossip that's being spread? This was scandalous, of course. This People are going to talk about it and they're going to, you know, in, enhance the stories as they go. So that is one very difficult thing about her downfall, just get, trying to sift through all that and getting just to the facts as, as best as we know them. Right. And beyond all these scandals and these stories and rumors, there was a real woman, as you say, who, you know, she's a real woman with real fears and real ambitions and real feelings who it's very hard to get at through the lens of time. But I'll be extremely excited to <laughs> read your book when it's done and kind of get a, a, a better picture of the real Anne Boleyn. 
Yeah, thank you. I, I spend a lot of time in 1535. So, you know, we've only just touched very, very lightly on it. So there's a lot there for us to learn about her, the mother. You know, at the start of 1535, Elizabeth's actually at court with them. So it's it's really sweet and we get to see I go through lots of accounts, so lots of purchases. So if you love the clothing, I do go through a lot of the clothes that she ordered in the last few months of her reign, which are just, oh, my goodness, so incredibly beautiful and sumptuous, and clothing that she ordered for Elizabeth. She was an absolutely doting mother. Um, I also, of course, touch on, we haven't really had time to do it today, but touch on her um, religious work as well. I, for some reason, you know, we, we allow Catherine of Aragon this very genuine spiritual side. Her piety is never questioned, but for some reason Anne's always is, and um, I don't think that's fair. So I, I try as best I can to kind of rectify that as well. Um, and just the, the everyday life things as well, the palaces that they're spending time in, what they looked like, the everyday activities, Christmas and Easter, um, and then, yes, and then all the events that led to May 19th, 1536, yeah. So hope, you know, if I get it done, ever, um, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be happy to share it with you. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'm sure you will, and I very much look forward to it. Thanks for listening. As always, there are a lot of ways to support the Explorers. Tell a friend about the show, leave a review wherever you listen, or become a patron. You can also have a browse over on my website, theexploresspodcast.com. You can find me on Instagram at theexploresspodcast. I post loads of content there every week, or occasionally on Twitter and Facebook. For more on Natalie's work, including her upcoming book, check out her website, nataliegruniger.com or thetutortrail.com. And make sure that you go and listen to some Talking Tutors. It has been a huge resource for me in putting together Season 3, and if you're into the tutors, you definitely want to be listening. Until next time. Music